You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. So here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to us. And when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. So today's Bible reading will be taken from the book of Job, chapter 38. So I'll be reading from the CSB version, and we'd encourage you to follow along in your own Bibles. And as always, the words will also be displayed on the screen. Job chapter 38. The Lord speaks. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. He said, Who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? What supports its foundations? Or laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who enclosed the sea behind doors? When it burst from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and total darkness its blanket, when I determined its boundaries and put its bars and doors in place, when I declared, you may come this far, but no farther, your proud waves stop here. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning or signed the dawn in its place so it may seize the edges of the earth and shake the wicked out of it? The earth is changed as clay is by a seal. Its hills stand out like the folds of a garment. Light is withheld from the wicked, and the arm raised in violence is broken. Have you traveled to the sources of the sea, or walked in the depths of the oceans? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the extent of the earth? Tell me, if you know all this. Where is the road to the home of light? Do you know where darkness lives so you can lead it back to its border? Are you familiar with the paths to its home? Don't you know? You were already born. You have lived so long. Have you entered the place where the snow is stored? Or have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I hold in reserve for times of trouble, for the days of warfare and battle? What road leads to the place where light is dispersed? Where is a source of the east wind that spreads across the earth? Who cuts the channel for the flooding rain or clears a way for lightning to bring rain on the uninhabited land, on a desert with no human life to satisfy the parched wasteland and cause the grass to sprout? Does the rain have a father? Who fathered the drops of dew? Whose womb did the ice come from? Who gave birth to the frost of heaven when water becomes as hard as stone and the surface of the watery depths is frozen? Can you fasten the chains of the Pleiades or loosen the belt of Orion? Can you bring out the constellations in their season and lead the bear and her cubs? Do you know the laws of heaven? Can you impose its authority on earth? Can you command the clouds so that a flood of water covers you? Can you send out lightning bolts as they go, and they go? Do they report to you 
here we are. Who put wisdom in the heart or gave the mind understanding? Who has a wisdom to number the clouds? Or who can tilt the water jars of heaven when the dust hardens like cast metal and the clods of dirt stick together? Can you hunt prey for a lioness or to satisfy the appetite of young lions when they crouch in their dens and lie in wait within their lairs? Who provides the raven's food when its young cry out to God and wonder about the lack of food? This is the word of God. Uh, well, friends, I'm going to work you hard today. Right, so I hope you're ready. We're going to cover the last chapters of Job. Okay, so it's, a, it's at running pace. So hang on in there. Um, and I can tell you uh, there are great things to learn here. But I also ought to tell you that that has, because I think this is better done in one go, I have shortened our series on this book. So next week, I'm doing a one-off sermon. And it's a, it's a sermon about um, lamenting. I think you all need to know about lamenting, so that's what we're doing next week. Okay, so come along. Uh, you'll understand those psalms that sometimes I guess you don't understand. So let's pray together, though, now, and ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, give us faith to receive your word, understanding to know what it means, and the will to put it into practice through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, well, the, the story is straightforward enough. Uh, you might remember it from that very first chapter of Job. Uh, the Lord God is meeting with the angelic beings and uh, an interloper appears. Satan, the adversary, is there in attendance and uh, God sees him and he points out Job to him and he praises Job's righteousness. And Satan disputes with God. He charges God, look, you've just put a protective hedge around him. He accuses Job before God. And what is his main charge? It is that Job is in relationship with God for what he can get out of it. That is, it pays to be related to God. The Lord denies this charge by the evil one. He has confidence in his servant Job. Nevertheless, he lets Satan have his way. In Job chapter 1, he lets Satan take his family and possessions from him. In chapter 2, Satan maintains that the testing of Job has not been rigorous enough. He needs to put him through a few more hoops. In response, God allows him to have his way again. Job's own body is affected. This is in Job chapter 2, verses 6 to 7. He falls ill. He suffers. In verse 9, his wife says, Oh, look, just deny God. He's forgotten you. Chapter 2, verse 11, his friends then visit him. But at first, they wait. But then they begin to debate with him. This happens in chapter 4. Basically, they side with Satan's point of view. They charge Job with sin. Uh, he must have sinned. Why? Well, because he's suffering. The equation works that way. And so they urge him, repent so that God can bless you again, restore you again. And they argue on and Job argues on and it goes on chapter after chapter. And then a young Elihu appears. He says his piece as well. He adds something, but nothing really of substance in Job's appeal to God. 
Job has been appealing constantly, I want God to come and visit me and talk to me and tell me himself. And eventually everyone falls silent. And that's where we arrive in Job chapter 38. So we're going to cover the remaining chapters today. So keep your Bibles open and we'll just skim through it and I'll show you the main points. I'll show you the main argument. The author, I think, seems to be interacting with a simple thesis. The thesis goes something like this. Look, God made the world. He's its creator. He set up the world in a particular manner and he set up his relationship with people in a particular manner. He's established various laws in his world that run the world and his relationships with human beings. And, one of, and those laws are foundational in the way that the universe functions. And one of those laws is this. People reap what they sow. People reap what they sow. And if the logic of that is followed rigorously, with regard to Job, it would look something like this. Human beings reap what they sow. That is, evil results in evil, good results in good. That's God's just way of ruling the universe. Job's reaching, reaping suffering. So he must have committed evil. The equation is easy to understand. However, the book is clear that Job will have nothing of it. He maintains that he's been innocent. He has not sinned, as it were, in the, in the way that he's reaping the consequences for. So, how do you respond then? What, what do you do? Where do you go? He's maintaining his innocence. Where do you go? Well, I think there's two, two responses that you could make at this point. If the law is true in all its circumstances, then Job should cave in and admit he's not innocent. Job should cave in and admit he's not innocent. Option number two, he can throw the whole thing back in God's face and accuse God of not acting according to his own rules. In other words, he can acknowledge the truth of the rules, say, yeah, the rules work, but they haven't worked in, in my, my situation. Now, since Job has indicated that he cannot, since that, Job has indicated that he cannot accept option number one. That is, he will not admit he's guilty of wrong. That's a potent thing, isn't it? He will not admit that he's guilty of wrong, or at least of the guilt that he's, the, the consequences of what he's suffering. Then by the logic of the argument put forward, what he is doing, and this is very striking, isn't it? He is raising a question of the justice of God. In effect, he's demanding a hearing from God. He's saying, God, what have you done? He's calling to account. He has a defense. He wants to bring God into court. That's his final plea. And finally, in these chapters we're going to look at, God responds. But do you know what he does? This is quite intriguing. Not in court. It's not an in-court hearing. No, it appears as though Job 38, the chapter we're going to look at and the chapters we're going to look at, he comes to Job in a sort of out-of-court way. <laughs> Just him. He comes to Job personally. And he challenges Job to think again. And here's my paraphrase um, of the argument. It goes, he starts off this way. Um, God starts by saying this. Look. You think I fail my rule of the universe, don't you? I want you to think through the implications of that. If that were true, 
You were saying, I haven't done a good job and that you could do it better. In effect, you're saying, oh, you're God, not me. You're saying that you are the one who determines what's good and evil. You know, you're the determiner of what's just and unjust. Well, Job, let's see your credentials. Let's see how good you really are. Let's let's see the stuff that gods like you are made of. Come on, Job. Come on. Be God. Wear the clothes gods wear. Do the things gods do. Look at verse 3 of chapter 38. Have a look at it in front of you. God says to Job, get ready to to answer me like a man. When I question you, you inform me. Basically, I think God is saying, Job, you've said much. You've questioned much. Now I'm going to ask some questions. Let me put you under the microscope for a moment, the way that you put me under the microscope. And God launches into his questioning. And I want you to look at what he says. And let me summarize by showing you some verses. God says to Job, this is verses 4 to 11. You tell me, Job, were you present at creation? Were you there when the created order was established? Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know, since it appears that you were there. Verses 2 to 5. On what were the footings of the earth set? Who laid its cornerstone? Who did this while the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy? Verses 6 to 7. Were you there when the chaotic sea was tamed? Are you the one who separates light and darkness, both physical and spiritual? Verses 12 to 15. Now look at verse 18. It's full of rebuke and seeming sarcasm. It goes like this. The Lord says, Oh, have you comprehended the extent of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. And while we're at it, Job, how well do you control the inner workings of the cosmos? Verses 16 to 21. I mean, have you comprehended the extent of the earth? Tell me if you know all of this. This is verse 18. Then the Lord goes on to the physical universe some more. He effectively asks Job, How well are you going in your control over the inner workings of the cosmos? How's it going today? I suppose you know, after all, you're sovereign over the earth, you know what's going on. Are you sovereign over snow, hail, wind, 22 to 24, rain? Even in the desert, verses 25 to 7, no one cares what happens in the desert, but you're in control of it over there as well. Rain, dew, ice, snow, verses 28 to 30. The constellations of the universe, 31 to 33. Clouds and rain, 34 to 38. Now look at chapter 38, verse 39. God continues. He presses on. This is tough stuff, isn't it? He presses on and he now turns to the creatures of the earth. And Job is so, so close here at asserting that he is overseer and judge of all. And God asked him about his control of that part of the earth as well. Any God who can rightly be God, called God, controls that part of the universe, don't they? Let me paraphrase again and move through the chapter. Glance at the verses as we go. God continues his questioning, his cross-examination. He's let Job have his word, now he's having his word. And note the sarcasm in it. 
How's it going, Job? How's it going? Do you know about all the creatures of the earth? Do you hunt the prey for the lioness? Do you provide food for the raven when it's young and cry out? Do you ever see the birth of the animals and of the earth? This is verses 1 to 4 of chapter 39. Oh, oh, and how about we get down to some specifics today? How's your knowledge and control, to, and control of the untamed wild ass going? That's verses 5 to 8. Oh, and what about the wild ox? Verses 9 to 12. And what about that great one, the ostrich? How are you going with that? 13 to 18. And I suppose it was you who made the horses the magnificent creatures that they are, verses 19 to 25. And what about hawks and eagles, verses 26 to 30? And how's your knowledge and supervision going with them these days? Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? That's verses 26 to 27 of chapter 39. Now I want to move on to chapter 40. We're moving at pace today, aren't we? Chapter 40, God pushes even further with Job. And I want you to imagine you're in Job's shoes. You've said all that Job said and you're now listening. Job, he, God forces Job to look openly and honestly at the charges he has made against the God of all the earth. In verse 2 of chapter 40, he says to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who argues with God give an answer. Verse 2. Job takes the point. He admits that he's not divine. Uh, look at verses 4 to 5. He says, Oh, look, I'm so insignificant. How can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. I've spoken once. I will not reply. Twice, but I now can add nothing. Oh, he's reached some humility here. But now look at verses 7 and 8. God pushes the point home to Job. It's clear that he sees Job has discredited him, the Lord. He's condemned him in order to justify himself. But look at verses 7 and 8. He, God says to him, get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, Will you inform me? Will you really challenge my justice? Will you declare me guilty to justify yourself? In effect, I think God is asserting, Job, you've claimed to be God himself. That's what this amounts to. And again, God questions his right. Again, he pushes him to recognise that God and God alone has the right to be called God. He alone is just. Look at him speak in verses 7 to 8. Have a look in your Bibles. He challenges Job to be like God. He says, I challenge you, Job, verses 7 to 8, exercise your power. Unleash your wrath, verse 11. Take control of uh, humanity's eternal destiny, verses 12 to 13. And then, if you can do this, then the Lord himself will confess that your own hand can deliver you. In other words, if you can do this, the Lord himself will recognise your deity. That's verse 14. It's potent, isn't it? I mean, have you ever seen such an interaction between God and a human being in the Bible? This, this, is, this is incredible. 
It's as though that he's... And look at verses 14, uh, verse 15. It's as though he's saying this. Oh, and while you're at it, Job, how about doing what I do? How about making pets out of deep sea monsters like Behemoth? Verses 15 to 24. And how about taming the crocodile? This is one to thirty, chapter forty-one, one to thirty-four. Come on, Job, show me your stuff. You're arguing as though you are God. Show me your stuff. Show me what real gods are made of. This has got to be some of the most potent literature in the Old Testament, hasn't it? It's incredible stuff. Do you hear the thrust of these verses? The implications are clear. Job cannot avoid them. If he can't do the sorts of things that the Lord has listed, he's in no place that he can discredit him. God can and does do these things. God daily demonstrates he is the Lord of the universe. And if he does this, if he does control all the forces of the universe, cosmic, earthly, if he does do this, then he also controls the forces of the underworld. Can you see that? So it's not just the surface, but it's the, the very powers underneath. And so Job is therefore faced with two decisions. He can accept that God is God. That would involve submitting to him. It means giving up his avowal of his innocence. It means relinquishing the, relinquishing the complaints that he's made against God and God's just government of the world. It means accepting God's, trusting God's blessing, curse, riches and ash heaps, or he can decide to argue his case against God. Can you see the starkness of it here? Such a decision is to do what? It's to go into court. It's to face a God who really is God. A God who really is the creator of the world, who really is the sustainer of the world, who, who alone knows what justice is, who is rightly the determiner of just and unjust. It would be a futile exercise if he's the real God, wouldn't it? For a real human to do that. But not only this. And here's the delight of it. Job has no interest in it. For all he wants is to relate to this God. That's what this whole argument has been. All he wants is to relate to this God. And that, I think, is what's going on in the final chapter of the book, chapter 42. Have a look at it. Notice the stark change that emerges in Job's reply. Look at verse 2 and following. He moves from wanting vindication now to wanting continued relationship with God. Now, that's a remarkable change for this man, although I think you could argue that he's always wanted that. He just didn't understand. Job expresses his dependence upon God. He realises that his zeal for vindication, God has rightly pushed him to this point, has erected a barrier between him and God. God has revealed himself and all Job wants is to relate to him as God. He surrenders, he surrenders, therefore, everything to God, including his just grievances. That's a massive step, isn't it? He does so to avoid sinning against God by assuming Godhead himself. In essence, do you know what he does here? He says, no, I can see. I'm not God. I'm not God and I don't want to face you in court. 
And no longer do I want God, you to listen to me. All I want now is to listen to you, for you are the God of all the earth. Look at him in verses 2 to 6. This is striking. Have a look. I know you can, he, he repents by putting himself in the place of God. He says, I know you can do anything. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely, says Job, I spoke about things I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. Oh, oh look, let me say... I had heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Can you see what he's saying? He's saying, I'd, I'd heard of you, I had this view of you, but now you've come to me one to one and I, I've seen something I've never seen and understood before. I had heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I reject my words. I'm sorry for them. I am dust and ashes. Verses 2 to 6 of chapter 42. He's come a long way, this man, hasn't he? Can you see and hear what's gone on here? Job has now seen God in a way he had never had previously. He had a knowledge of God, but it was imperfect and it was flawed. Now he sees God truly. So there we have this section of the book and this conclusion. I hope I've made it understandable for you what's gone on in this book. The remaining verses have Job's friends rebuked for their part in this. They tell of Job's restoration and intercession for his friends. But I want to close by making some reflections upon us and our situation. You see, no matter who you are here today, there will have been some time in your life when you will have argued with God Oh, you might have done it sort of low tone. But there will be times in your life when you've argued with God. And let me say, perhaps there are some of you here today who are in the midst of an ongoing argument with God, even now. And many of us will have at some stage in our lives come to God and argued with him. In my observation and reading, the arguments run in a variety of forms. Here they are. This is Andrew Reid's just mere reflections. Some are legitimate. Some are not. Some are accusing God of unfairness or injustice. Some are merely charging God with not telling us what he's doing. These arguments with God, they come in a multitude of forms. We might hold a grudge against God for not providing us with a partner for life. We might be angry with him for not converting a certain person despite all our prayers every day. We might not understand why, he's not, why he allowed a certain person close to us to die or suffer. We may wonder why we can't have kids. Or why when we do they have abnormalities, deformities or are missing the gifts that we wish they might have. Or we, might, or we might have an illness that is incurable, which God refuses to deliver us from despite our pleadings, despite the fact that we know he could and despite our prayers for him to do so. We may not have the gifts or abilities that we would like. 
Or we may not get the job or the financial resources we think we have every right to have as a loyal servant of our God. He may have lumped us with a physical shape or with a personality that we wish were different. Or with gifts that we thought we would like. Perhaps he's calling us from a situation we find secure and comfortable to one we know we will find difficult. No matter what it is, and you will have your own variation, I think, on these things. No matter what, we find God at sometimes incomprehensible. Or we find him unjust. And most of us would not dare say this, but we, or we find him harsh or unfair. And we resent him and we argue with him. Oh, quietly, quietly. We call him and his decisions into question. And in doing so, we make Job's mistake, I think. Oh, let me say, the fact that this book is in the Bible is a glorious note about what God can accept, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's a glorious note that he wants us to bring these things to him and he's put a book in the Bible that says, here, be careful though, <laughs> be careful. But when we do what Job does, we make Job's mistake because we step out from being creatures, don't we? That is, what we do is we take our stand above God and we say, I am God in the end. I'm the arbiter of what's just and unjust. I'm the determiner of good and evil. I am God. And do you know what God says back in response? He comes to us out of court, out of court. And he says, oh, really? Then step outside with me for a moment, will you? Take a look around. I, I suppose it was you who made the DNA molecule the way that it is. I suppose it's you who sends electrons spinning the way that they do. I suppose it's you who causes the grass to grow and photosynthesis to occur. I guess it's you who causes lightning and thunder. I guess it's you who holds the planets in space. I guess you know every planet and star in existence and supervise their movements and their motions. And by the way, when was the last time you said to the wind, stop? And it stopped. But more than this, since when have you understand the human personality in all its complexities? <laughs> since when have you been able to deal with human nature? Tell me what plan you have for dealing with human propensity towards sin. How are you going to sort that one out? Tell me now, how are you going to get rid of greed of lust, of violence. When is it that you are going to deal with sin? And when is it that you're going to devise a way whereby sinful men and women will be able to live with a holy God? Because that's remarkable beyond all these other things I have talked about. When is it that you're going to do what I have done in my son Jesus? Do you hear what hear and see what I'm telling you? When you can do all of this, then come and tell me that I am wrong. When you can do all of this and all other things I do, then I'll admit you're God. And do you see how God responds here? This is, this is very potent. 
He's saying to us, friends, do you see what I'm getting at? I'm God. I know what I'm doing. There are things at work here that you do not know much about. There are forces at work here which you are not aware of. But please, 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 please be assured. I am the creator. I am the sustainer. I am sovereign. I am in control. I know what I'm doing. And what's more, I love you. But if words are not enough, if you still doubt me, if you still need reassurance, come with me. Come with me outside. Then travel back in time with me and look at this cross on this hillside. Look at this man suffering on that cross. I want you to know who he is. He's my son. He's my son, my only son. The son of my love. And he's dying. He's dying for a cause. He's dying for you. He's dying so that you and I can be related. He's dying so that we can be friends. He's dying so that the world can be restored back to the way I intended it to be. He's dying so that there'll be a day when there'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more misunderstanding, no more confusion. If you cannot believe my words, then please, please, please believe my actions in my world, in my son. I do love you. I am in control and I am God. Friends, let us go to this God in prayer this day and give him his due. And to do this, I want to say together an ancient hymn of the church. This is a very, very, very old prayer. It's called the Te, da Te Deum Laudamus. Uh, it's often used in morning prayer in the Anglican prayer book. And I'm going to get, uh, I'm going to scroll through it. I think I've left it on, uh, on the overhead and you can have a look as we go if you like. But I'm going to pray it because I think it's a glorious prayer. And if you agree with these words, then just in your lips, inside your mouth, join with me. Here it is. We praise you, O God. We acclaim you as the Lord. All creation worships you, the Father everlasting. To you, all angels, all the powers of heaven, the cherubim and seraphim, sing in endless praise. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. The glorious company of apostles praise you. The noble fellowship of prophets praise you. White-robed army of martyrs praise you. Throughout the world, the holy church acclaims you. Father of majesty unbounded, 
your true and only Son, worthy of all praise, and the Holy Spirit, advocate and guide. You, Lord Christ, are the King of glory, the eternal Son of the Father. When you took our flesh, you set us free. You humbly chose the virgin's womb. You overcame the sting of death. You opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers, and you are seated at God's right hand in glory. And this is an Andrew Reid insert here. And though sometimes we doubt such things, we believe that you will come to be our judge. Come then, Lord, and help your people, bought with the price of your own blood, and bring us with your saints to glory everlasting. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.